Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a new release. I'm Scott Tobias, here once again with Keith Phipps, Tasha Robinson, and Rachel Handler. This week, we're talking about Werner Herzog's A Gear of the Wrath of God and Alejandro Gonzalez Inarritu's The Revenant, two period survival adventures about men and filmmakers driven to the brink. But before we get into The Revenant, a little plot first. Leonardo DiCaprio stars as Hugh Glass, who survives wounds from a vicious bear attack that nearly kills him in the betrayal of a fur trapper played by Tom Hardy, who leaves him for dead. His madness isn't quite the same as Kinsey's Agira. Let's just say he's extremely motivated to survive the brutal cold and have his revenge. Though they take place in extreme heat and extreme cold, the two films are about the mad visions of filmmakers and characters who try to conquer the elements and come back bruised for their trouble. Same up here. No, no, I'm going to have to go back. Yeah. Find another way. Oh, shit. No way. Hold him. Glass. You. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Lay that rag over his eyes, Mr. Bridger. What? Sir, I can't. Lay the rag over his eyes. What? Wait. I'm sorry. Wait. You. Sir, I, I Wait. Can't, I can't do that. How do we get back without him? He, he's the only one who knows the way. So, uh, I guess since we didn't really talk much at all about The Revenant in the first part, I just want to get some general impressions. Tasha, what did you think of The Revenant? Oh, I'll go last. I've been talking first most of the time, and besides which, I think I'm the only person who liked this movie. <laughs> so you should you should definitely come to me last. Yeah, okay. I'm looking forward to the bile. Okay. Like, that's where I want to start. All right. Well, I think we'll, we'll start with the bile and then work up to the praise. I think we're going to kind of move in order, because Rachel, I think you may have liked at least of at least the three of them, right? Yes. I, I wouldn't go right to bile, but at somewhere near the end of the movie, I was sitting next to Genevieve, and I think it was when Leo was shoving gunpowder into his neck wound, and I turned to Genevieve. Genevieve and I just said masculinity porn and we both just started laughing because I think by the end it was just it just felt a little bit ridiculous it felt like it was really romanticizing sort of stupidity and recklessness and rage and irrationality all in the name of this old-timey notion of being a man you know getting what's yours overcoming your foe whether your foe was a bear or Tom Hardy or nature it was just this tired notion of sort of being tough it felt like Inner too is sort of almost erotically obsessed with this idea so it was hard for me it was a beautiful movie I thought it was stunningly shot and it was technically wonderful but I was very distracted by just sort of the amping up of the stakes to the point where it got absurd. What about you, Keith? I solidly liked it. The first 40 minutes or so are some of the best filmmaking I've seen this year. Just sort of long extended sequences in, in a camp and these unbroken takes. I'm not sure how they, they were accomplished. I thought it ended well, too. I think it is at heart a rip-roaring tale of adventure and revenge that has pretensions that can kind of get the better of it at times. But it's definitely my favorite Inuritu film since uh, Amores Paros. And I, I think it has just some extraordinary stuff that I've, I've never seen in a film before. So I, with, with some 
caveats. I think it's a solidly good film. Tasha? I'm really enthused about this film without really disagreeing with anything that Rachel said. Uh, I do think it can be read as masculinity porn. And I admit that I was largely on board with it, like solidly, just like I'm really enjoying this until that moment, about 40 minutes in where it becomes clear exactly what shape the story is going to take. You know, there's always that excitement with a film where you you don't know where it's going. And I hadn't seen the awful final trailer that gives away 60% of the movie. Mm -hmm. So, like, I went in knowing it was going to be, like, impressionistic in certain ways and not much more. So when I saw where the film was going, I was I was kind of disappointed. I do think that it's it's a little overblown in its, like, revenge fantasy, which I agree is a boring fantasy. But that said, it, this movie was just so beautifully made. It's so intensely acted. Tom Hardy's performance is so stunning to me. Um, the progression of the story, once we're kind of through, like, the most hot-blooded part of, like, the revenge nonsense, I think it does finally cool back down to some degree and come back to a place of like of art and beauty. And apart from the just stunning hypocrisy of the very final act, mm-hmm. I, like I really love this movie. You know what, what I find interesting about all three of your reactions and mine, oh my my reaction the most interesting of all <laughs> um is that is is that I think that we fundamentally agree on where the film is best and where the film starts to take a turn towards the not as good. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just a matter of how much we feel the film falls after that first, say, 40 minutes because I'm completely on board with with Keith. I feel like, one, this is is his best film since Amore's Paris. I think it it plays entirely to his strengths, which which are uh, virtuosity and intensity and, and not a lot of talk um, or humor. There are sequences in the film, you know, battle sequence, I suppose you would call it, and then leading into the bear attack. Both of those sequences are uh, masterful. I mean, I'm, I'm not, you know, I, I'm I'm his, uh, I guess, most notorious <laughs> hater at this point, but I, I certainly bow, bow to the, the mastery of the filmmaking there. I think the film does take a turn, and, and, it, and it becomes redundant and repetitive, and it, and it falls into a lot of old Inuritu habits that I, I don't like, which is that he, he cannot modulate his style in any way shape or form i mean he is go 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 he's an intense all the time and at two and a half hours this film just absolutely brutalizes you and the other thing too um rachel was talking about you know the intense whatever masculinity of the film you know something like you could say that something like peck and paws straw dogs is a similar thing but the difference between the two filmmakers is I, I feel like Inuritu is not a sensual filmmaker. He doesn't know anything about film pleasure. That you feel like you're going to school with this guy and then and then he's teaching the same lesson every single time. He brutalizes you and he beats you down emotionally and I feel you feel wrung out uh, by everything he does. And I and, I, and it's just, I think in this particular instance, you know the Revenant is better served by that style than Birdman, which is, you know, maybe the worst possible application of that style. But it's still the same guy. And I watched the film thinking, okay, there he is. There's there's the Inuritu I, I know and don't like uh, <laughs> okay. coming, coming through in the second half of this movie. I don't disagree with your point about him always making the same point, but I want to hear you vocalize it. In your opinion, what is that point that he's always trying to reach? Well, I, maybe that point, I just think, I think the tone is what doesn't waver. It doesn't modulate. And I think when he tries to do it, 
he fails. He doesn't when he, when he tries to go for moments of, of lightness or wit, it falls flat. I mean, the, the moment the the most there's many ridiculous moments in this movie, but there's one moment in this movie where he and a native are just sort of uh, their the snow is falling and they've got their tongues out in there, and it's kind of a, a moment of levity in a, an otherwise grim movie. And I thought this is kind of dumb. You know, this is not <laughs> well. This is something that he put in the movie as a different beat maybe conscious of the fact that it's two and a half hours of, of uh, relentless intensity, and it doesn't work. He can't do that. I feel like you can almost see it in Leo's eyes in that scene, too. Like, he's like, what the hell? What like, am I doing in this thing? When can I stop? Poor Leo. He's like, in that particular I've got to right? drag myself <laughs> through this whole experience to get some respect and acknowledgement. But, but I do recognize the technique of the film. But for me, the point that Inyuritu seems to be making over and over is just that the world is a is a brutal place that will beat you down, that it's, you know, full of the hypocrites and monsters and traitors and just people with no empathy and people with no sensitivity. And it takes a lot of strength to resist that and keep coming back from it. And I agree with you that Birdman... Birdman makes that message in just the most like self-important, self-absorbed. We we resist it by making art because we are great artists, kind of way, and it just it's really oh what what's what's a word for it? I mean, embarrassing comes to mind, but pretentious was the one I used. But, pretentious uh, is good, but also <laughs> just like self-indulgent. I right. mean, it's just it's very naked. You know, we we are the makers of important things. We are the dreamers of dreams, kind of thing. Him hitting that point is no different from Herzog returning over and over to madness and ambition. It's if he has a single point and he can express it in ways as diverse and different as some of his films, not all of yeah. his films, then like I have no problem with him coming back to that point. I, I just started to see a pattern. I think that's kind of what led to me writing this very unusual review um, that people, you know, I don't generally open reviews with ad hominem attacks like I did with Birdman, but I, I had gotten to a point with his work where it's like, okay, I see what this guy's all about. I've seen Amoris Peros in 21 Grams and Babel and Beautiful and Birdman, and I just, I know who this guy is. I know what he has to offer, and I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't like it. And it's and it's the same thing. I mean, it, for the longest time, I'd associate it with the screenwriter, uh, Guillermo Arriaga, because Arriaga, with th- three straight films, had done these sort of a chronological Everything is tale, tale, everything is connected. Tales of human uh, woe, but then he made beautiful uh, without um, Ariaga, and it was the same sort of thing. And you know, I never and... saw that one, so mm-hmm. maybe I'm one behind on it. I like, I did, I got very sick of the the everything is connected, oh, yeah. asynchronous stories. But for and I hated Birdman. I, I mean, I don't think anybody in the world necessarily hated it quite as much as you did. But mm-hmm. I think we were all pretty close behind yeah, you and just yeah. finding it pretentious and obnoxious. But this film, for me, takes some of the same ideas. And the same themes and some of the same filmmaking with the return to these like long dynamic takes and the camera wildly panning back and forth to catch different things within a scene. Like I feel like he's taking all of this stuff and doing it again, but he's doing it in service of, if not a, the perfect story, at least a better story. Yeah, we'll be talking a lot about The Revenant, but let's bring uh, Agira the back in the conversation So and get started with our forum in which each of us brings a topic connecting the two films to the table. Keith, do you want to get started? Uh, I want to start with the idea of imperialism as it plays out in, in both films. And I think it plays out in very similar ways where it is about 
the, the hubris of, of Europeans coming in and thinking they can kind of uh, claim this place as their own. In, in, in Agira, the indigenous people are kind of, in some ways, you know, sidelined. They're either you know silently have impressed in the service or they're attacking. But at the same time, there's a sense that these people who don't belong don't really understand the people that are either working beside them or attacking them or they're just sort of killing randomly. And Revenant's a little more dramatic, but there's very violent confrontations between the Native Americans and the fur trappers. I, one thing that impressed me so much about the opening sequence is this sense of disruption. Like, here are all these carcasses of, of the wildlife that they've killed. And here they're being attacked by the, the tribes that they've either you know displaced or otherwise sort of upset who are going trying to steal these back from them. It's sort of this, this cycle of disruption where you have this beautiful nature, beautiful scenes of nature, and then you have people coming in, first the Europeans and the Native Americans, uh, as a result of their intrusion, uh, just, just shedding all this blood uh, that, that uh, wouldn't have been shed without them. I mean, I think both sense there's, there's an idea that humanity comes in and, and messes things up. I mean, and, and even in the, in the big bear attack sequence, it's not a, a bear attacking randomly. It's a bear attacking uh, DiCaprio's character because she feels he's threatening her cubs. And, and that's kind of the film's attitude towards towards nature and the intrusion of, of uh, European civilization in, in general. And I think the, the depiction of the indigenous people is a little more, a lot more nuanced. Well, maybe a little more nuanced than uh, The Revenant, but it's ultimately kind of the same thing. The sense that this, these people do not belong. How do everyone else feel it played out? To me, The Revenant, and maybe it's the Lubeski connection, but it was sort of a, a more visceral version of the new world. Right. Um, oh, yeah, and that, sure. and that it's and, and it reminded me of that, and, and this also plays out in Aguirre, where they're taking this the, the, their way of life and planting it in infertile ground. And there's something so unnatural about the way that they're trying to operate in the, on, this, on this land that is not, not theirs, that they don't have control over. Another connection between the New World and the Revenant is that in both cases, the male protagonists have a native wife, and their relationship involves him going native and being a part of the native life, which seems to be being a part of the natural world. Both of them have flashbacks to this time where they were much more a part of nature, where they like lived in this sun-dappled pastoral version of heaven. And then you see what their lives are like among the conquerors, among the outsiders, and it's a much more like violent, unpredictable. Predictable, uh, masculine-driven, angry lifestyle. I mean, I, I started feeling Terrence Malick connections with the f- first shot, that uh, incredible first shot of The Revenant, where DiCaprio and the boy playing his son are walking through the forest, and there's all of this water rushing along through it. You just get this sort of sense of, you know, nature as this this burgeoning, wild, crazy thing that's being portrayed in this incredible level of beauty. And then you cut to the fur trapper's camp, and it's just animal bodies. Huh being ripped open and there's like there's blood and guts and bone everywhere there's just sort of this sense of the first thing we do when we get here is i'm going to say it rape everything we see Mm -hmm. and they keep coming back to the idea of the beaver pelts and the importance of getting the beaver pelts to civilization because they've spent six months killing everything in sight the uh conquistadors in agira wrath of god are looking to do the same thing And one of the things that I found funniest about the movie is that the title actually opens by saying, you know, after the conquering of the Incan Empire, the natives made up the legend of El Dorado. 
I mean, that seems really <laughs> accusatory to me. Just it's basically we're sick of dealing with these people. We came up with a lie that we thought would distract them and make them go away. And that's that's the feeling of, you know, once the once the white men get here, things really go to crap. And, and I, they do. Can I do my Admiral Akbar impression? <laughs> it's a trap. <laughs> it is a trap. Just go way down river, down the incredibly violent river in all of your, your heavy gear among the natives with the poison arrows. Everything will be fine and you'll be rich. Just just go, guys. Well, I think you make an important point, too, about uh, the lead characters in the New World and the Revenant having a relationship with a Native American because I think it goes back to the point I was making in the first part of the segment, which which is about approaching you know nature with a certain amount of humility. So there's that element too, and that's that informs that character and gives that and gives that character some separation from his men. But then on the river, the, the other side of that, when DiCaprio and when Colin Farrell in the other film come back to having to try to live in this quote-unquote civilized way when they're back among their peers, they're alien to them, too. I feel like Agira was, like I said, there was no real good guy or bad guy, and then they talked a lot about the natives being cannibals and calling them meat and everything like that. But I I also think in The Revenant, it was interesting because Agira, the, the conquistadors, were very clearly punished for their hubris. They were very clearly sort of all idiots who made huge mistakes. But I think in The Revenant, I mean, I think Hugh Glass, I think, is sort of forgiven for his sin against against the native population because he has a, a native wife and a native son and you know it's a little bit more complicated but I think ultimately he's still sort of praised as this hero in the film he's he's a hero and he's the protagonist which I think is really interesting I mean I, there, there there's not a lot of nuance in that regard in the revenant which sort of bothered me like he was he saved that one native woman from being raped and he had a native wife and so all the you know bear killing and and all the plundering that he must have done earlier on in the film is sort of forgiven it felt like I would have liked to have seen more of we get just like a, a small snippet at the beginning of the film after the the huge native slaughter of his relationship with his son and his relationship with the other trappers who have clearly hired him as a guide. And there's a sense that he's like so many people who have who can speak the Indian language, who like have some sort of connection with the natives who know their way around the country, he's sort of regarded as suspect. You know, he's an outsider. He may have gone native. We need him in order to survive and in order to communicate with the natives, in order to know like where to go and what to do, but we also hate him for it. Is it true what they say? About you shooting that lieutenant while you was living them sandwiches? Gerald. 21 dead soldiers, more than 40 dead feathers. You and your boy are the only ones who get to walk out alive. It's kind of a miracle, don't you think? You need to shut up, Fitzgerald. That what you did? Shot one of your own to save this little dog right you here? You know what you want to fight, son? Why, was he playing with this little boy's mama? Huh? Fitzgerald! Did he kill her? He's kind of neither, neither here nor there. I mean, he's he's not. He lost his family. That's not a spoiler. That's that's there at the beginning. But he's not. He's not really fully trusted by the by the Europeans either. And his son encounters just outright racism. In, in some ways, he's maybe forgiven to a degree for not being entirely invested in, in the in the world of, of the European settlers. Yeah, I mean, he's meant to be. That's meant part of what's meant to make him sympathetic. And then in Aguirre, on the other end of that scale, you have the Spanish nobleman that they nominate as their emperor. Eventually, under uh, fairly extreme, no eyelids, <laughs> having glowered from uh, Kinski, <laughs> sitting in his little uh, makeshift throne as they drift down the river and saying, "All the land." I see now belongs to us. 
you know, our our country is now six times as big as Spain, and it gets bigger every day we drift. He's Yertle the turtle, basically. <laughs> sure, why not? He's yeah. Yertle the turtle. He's Yertle the turtle. But I mean, you want to talk about uh, unchecked greed and, and arrogance. You know, I, I hereby claim everything I see. Yes, I know that that land over there is already packed full of indigenous inhabitants who are in the middle of trying to kill me. I have no power to actually take this land, but because I see it, it's mine. Yeah, sure. I mean, and I think that level of entitlement might play a little bit into what Rachel has to say, right, Rachel? Indeed it does, Scott. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so I'm I'm going to talk about um, the ideas of masculinity and femininity in both films, which are topics that always fascinate me in movies, but particularly in these two. Like we talked about earlier, you know, this I did think of this as sort of a masculinity porn, uh, The Revenant, that is. Um, and I think Agira really paints uh, Inez as as sort of the smartest character in the film, the only the only person who really knows what's going on and who really sees the problem before it occurs, uh, which I think is really interesting. I think. To me, watching Agira post The Revenant, it almost felt like Agira was sort of retroactively mocking The Revenant. You know, it, it sort of looks down on its central characters while Inaritu looks up. You know, he's looking at Glass as this hero, as this sort of transcendent, you know, masculine figure. And meanwhile, the women in the movie either hardly speak and are, are victims or are literally ghosts who go on and on about trees every now and then. Whereas in Agira, Inez is really an agent and she, she, she walks off into the jungle at the end because I think she realizes she has no other choice and this is her only the only way she can exercise any control so i'm curious if you guys what your what your impression of the women in, in both films were and what what sort of inuritu was saying about them and what herzog was saying about them i think all too often in any story that's about the olden times whatever the olden times are uh, and i include like wolf of wall street in this uh <laughs> idea of the olden times women are seen as either as scott said in the first part of this discussion as status indicating property or as sort of a, a metaphor for civilization. Like you're, you have your cowboy, you know that your cowboy is domesticated and that uh, the Wild West is being tamed when he marries somebody and when he settles down and when he has kids. And I feel like in this case, we kind of get a little of both. Uh, the rape victim in The Revenant is, is property. You know, she has been stolen from her tribe. Her tribe is looking for her to get her back. There's a lot of violence committed over the process of getting her back, but she's never really a character. And the wife, she represents this ideal, this ideal of domesticity, this ideal of peace, all of these things that Hugh Glass doesn't have anymore. And it kind of feels to me like in Aguirre, the women are being brought along, I guess. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to accept Scott's uh, theory that it's an indication of how easy they expected the trip to be. But I also feel like it's an indication of we're bringing our civilization with us. We're bringing these, you know, very, very nicely dressed women along on this trip that's expected to take at least a week and probably a lot more. I, it's just it's still such a strange detail to me. But I think it is a detail meant to meant to bring them in as like the civilizing influence and the representation of sort of the high culture of Spain that people are sort of trying to preserve and maintain. My gu- my point isn't really as much where they sit within the story, but how the director portrays them. To me, it sort of felt like Inaritu was saying, "Oh, we don't have any women in this movie. Let's let's put a dead one in. She can sort of motivate him. <laughs> let's put a rape victim in. She can like sort of save him ish." Versus where in Agira, he he really to a further degree he fleshes out the women and makes them uh, actual characters who have something to say. I I'm not sure I agree with your take on the way Herzog looks at the women, mostly just because to me most of what Ina said 
says is, I wish this was over. I wish this could end. Mm -hmm. I wish we were back. To me, it represents sort of a like a flaty, willy headed kind of thinking that isn't any way about the practicality of how do we get out of the situation. It's just like, oh, I wish things were different. But he sort of makes a point to show the men making fun of her, saying, "Okay, child, we understand you're confused, which to Mm -hmm. me is really interesting. He's saying, look, this is how women were treated. Isn't it absurd? I didn't expect that coming from him, honestly. <laughs> I, the flip side of that, I, I do kind of appreciate your, your although I like the film better than you, I, I appreciate your reading of it as, as masculinity porn and, and sort of like all these char- all these men who have to go to great lengths to survive, but also the film definitely revels in, in, in the, the suffering and, and the uh, hardship and uh, that they, they go through uh, to the point where it, there's there's a fall late in the film. I don't want to say anything, but but it's just like, oh boy, really? We're, <laughs> it's just, you know, is, is this is this guy Wiley Coyote at this point? <laughs> <laughs> yes. But I, I, and at that point, it's kind of like, but he's just so tough. You know, the the you know he can fall off things that other people can't fall off, and he'll be fine. It, to me, it, it kind of skirts up against absurdity without crossing over. But it's definitely you know for other people, it might be different. So so help me though with the search for meaning in in this theme of masculinity and the revenant. I see the presence of it and the assertion of it but what is the film saying about it that is resonant because that is the theme of the film probably exactly to me the theme of the film is the thing that i was sort of skirting around earlier and that i still can't talk about in detail because i don't want to give away that profoundly hypocritical moment at the end where glass basically says revenge belongs in god's hands i feel like the movie is trying to sell that as a theme that actually is meant to be trenchant and important and i think it does a terrible job of it and that's why that moment really undermined the film for me. I feel like that point is hit several times and his actions in that moment are supposed to reflect him coming to a higher realization about revenge. And what he actually does is just so profoundly dumb. Well, that's, a, that's a, I mean, if that you, you feel is the theme of it, I feel like it's handled catastrophically. Yes. Then, <laughs> at the end, if that's, the, if that's what we're supposed to get out of it. Yeah, it's, it's one of my biggest, one of my pr- biggest problems with the film and we can't really talk about it without mm-hmm. spoiling the film. But uh, that feels like sort of a postscript to a film that's otherwise about you can't be too tough you know you, you can't be too tough in this world that's, yeah. that's uh, uh, if you're not you're, you'll end up uh, frozen somewhere in the Yukon or not in the Yukon but you know what I mean mm-hmm. that's interesting yeah, the film now fails more than I thought that it did well, that's, that's just it I, to me that moment is Inuritu trying to be Malik he's he's trying to embrace Terrence Malik's constant theme of grace mm-hmm. and he just completely whiffs on it <laughs> and I'm saying this about a film I other than that mostly respected I agree. I think it's catastrophic. I I think it's an incredibly stupid moment. So, Tasha, I wanted to throw to you in your topic while we're still rolling along here. Uh, madness, which plays a part, a pretty sig- substantial and obvious part in Aguirre, the Wrath of God. We're, 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 we're in The Revenant. Well, in The Revenant, I feel like Hugh Glass is, is wounded by the bear to a point where a normal man would die. Mm-hmm. And he seems like he really is on his way out for a, a chunk of the film. And then something happens. He's betrayed in a really personal way. Again, spoiled by the trailer if you really want to get into it. Um, and it's like he heaves himself, the whole idea of the title, you know, he's back from the dead. He heaves himself out of his grave in this ridiculous kind of point blank kind of way. Mm. And that is where the masculinity gets a little overboard for me. Mm. But I feel like he's also, he goes to a place of insanity. And all that's driving him is the will 
that is bent around the desire to avenge what's happened to him. And I feel like he goes into this place, this very primal place, where he's driven so much by this one motive that he forgets his body. He, I mean, he can't forget it because it's torn into shreds, but he supersedes its limitations. Let me ask you this question then about that. Do you feel then he would have just died if he hadn't been betrayed? I <laughs> Do you feel like he was on his way to the grave? I think it's far more possible, yes. I mean, I don't know that the movie spells it out. Is there any point in speculating about what might have happened if the thing that makes the story didn't make the story? But the direction that the film was going in up until that point, yeah, it seems entirely possible that he is driven to superhuman acts of will by his rage and his rage comes from an outside source, so he has to reflect it back on that outside source. It kind of brings me back to the question I raised earlier, which is, at what point does Aguirre go mad? Does it predate the action of the film, or is it the moment they go off on their, their quest and the, the chance for real power becomes uh, within his grasp for the first time, or, or what? I, I, I don't quite know how to read that. I love that question, because I think you could make a, a cogent argument for virtually anything like along the scale. Rewatching it again, I think you see him doing some very crafty, calculated political things, like getting the person that he wants out of the way out of the way without taking charge of it necessarily, and then putting a figurehead in his place. Like all of this is not Kinsky level frothing madness. It is calculated. But at the same time, he seems so set apart from everything he's doing. He seems so abstracted most of the time. I think it's entirely possible that he always was that madman who thought he was going to be the emperor of the new world and the breeder of the pure race. And everything we're seeing him do is aimed towards that bent. Well, I mean, I think maybe the, just the achievement of power is is the tipping point then. You know, you say he's very, he is crafty, as you say, in terms of making his way up the ladder. But once once he's there, once once he has that power, that's the trigger. That's when that's when he goes mad. Perhaps I'm thinking about the Revenant now, and I don't know that Inaritu would necessarily say that Glass was ever mad. I I feel like he oh, paints him so not mad, <laughs> mad know, crazy. <laughs> he's definitely pissed. I think he sees him almost sort of like an Avenger or something. Like he's just transformed into this super heroic sort of virile survivalist man and he just you know deals with things and fixes you know all his issues and to me it seems Inaritu revels in in what Glass is doing I don't think he sees it as insanity I think as a viewer maybe we do but I didn't get that vibe necessarily I mean I for me it comes back to that vengeance is in God's hands thing at, yeah. the, at the ending. I think that that's supposed to be the moment where he wakes up and he, he looks back at himself and he sees how he's been acting. He sees how he's been driven and that it has a real cost in human lives other than his own. And I think he's meant to, at that moment, sort of achieve his, his higher consciousness and return to the peace where he was with his like wife and son right. before she became the tree ghost. I, I think that there's meant to be a, a release from madness in what he does in that moment. It's just the way he does it doesn't play. It just happens to coincidentally be after he's achieved his goals that (laughs) the madness required him to achieve. As I say, (laughs) hypocritical is just the only word I can Right, yeah, that's, yeah. Is there an analog too in that in terms of transformation between what happens to Hugh Glass and what happens in Birdman and Birdman's alter ego? Are they, are those super heroic transformations going on in both well that's an interesting Mm -hmm. and depressing question (laughs) (laughs) no none of us want to reflect on birdman but but as soon as she said super heroic i thought huh 
Uh, maybe that's the connection between those two movies. Well, he does treat both as if they've accomplished something great by the end. Transcendent. You know? and they both, yeah. Right. They both have the... They both transcended their humanity. Right. And it's right. this beautiful thing, you know? Yeah. He does that in Beautiful as well. Yeah. Yeah. And Babel. <laughs> <laughs> and other stuff. Yeah. Um, I, I really don't want to think about <laughs> Birdman and how it, it fits in too much because <laughs> Birdman is a movie that very much embraces madness and the theme of madness. But then in the end, he kind of shows you he wasn't crazy after all. He really is capable of all these mm-hmm. amazing... Ugh, That's what I'm saying. I think he doesn't think any of his protagonists are crazy. I think he loves them. I think he wants to be them. I oh, really I really do. hope he doesn't want to be mauled by a bear. <laughs> I think he does. I think he wants to come back from a bear mauling and be like, what? What now? You know, I know yeah. how Scott feels about his extra textuals, but this does make me wonder if he's got like some huge tragedy in his past and like all of his movies are about working out the issues of survival and overcoming mm-hmm. and, you know, coming back from something that people aren't meant to come back from necessarily. But hey, stop getting Birdman all over my revenant. <laughs> <laughs> you want to talk about extra textual. All movies are more interesting in context. But uh, this just it makes me feel so sticky to think about all of the the horrible, horrible concepts that he might have had in mind when he was making this film that, that worked for me. Yeah, this is his film. This is the Alejandro Gonzalez Iñárritu film. This is not removed from the rest of his work, and I, which, I got... is, which is in a way how I felt comfortable enough to open a review with an ad hominem attack. Because at that time, I thought, I know what this guy's all about now. I've seen enough films. This is what he does. This is his shtick. And I'm tired of it. I, I guess one other connection we should make, and, and, and it is it is exactly kind of connects to what we're talking about with the directors, is the hell that was making both these films. It's become already become part, part of the, the legend of The Revenant is how difficult it was to make from reports that, that the crew was not treated particularly well on through these you know searches for snow and, and capturing just the right natural light. And, and, and I believe... There is like only one scene where any sort of artificial light was was involved uh, at all because of uh, Inurito's insistence on on shooting it in the conditions that he wanted to shoot it in. Not totally removed from what Herzog does uh, with uh, Gare and, and other films as well. So I think there's there's kind of the the director throwing themselves into the position of the of the characters in in, in both instances here. Yeah, there is that sort of, you know, madness as a necessary element for creating art. There are artists who really embrace that idea. And sometimes they create great art, but they almost always create a lot of difficulty for the people around them. I think that's a primary strength, really, of The Revenant, that very thing. And it kind of ties in to my topic, uh, which which I've called The Limits of Control. One of the big differences to me between The Revenant and Aguirre is that The Revenant, despite filming in these terrible conditions, is the much more planned out and meticulous of the two movies. In The Revenant, the fluid choreography in that first shootout and the bear attack alone cannot happen without every beat being blocked out in advance. With Aguirre, you get the feeling that the shoot, and the script for that matter, was very much done on the fly, which is the mark of a director who's always making documentaries, even when he's shooting fiction films. And while I would never reject one style over the other, in these specific instances, I think Herzog's approach is more organic and natural and continues to yield new insights and surprises throughout. Inaritu can kind of knock you out with his technical mastery, which he does in that first 40 minutes or so, uh, but a certain monotony kicks in after a while when it's clear that the film isn't going to change tones or evolve into something deeper than a visceral survival revenge tale. I feel like the difference in approach in some in some ways reflects the difference in the setting because Aguirre takes place in this, this lush, overgrown jungle where 
the survival problems have to do in part with the natives and in part with the mistakes that they're making. But they're in a very improv-heavy environment. They're mm. in an, an environment where they don't know where they're going. They think they'll know it when they get there. They think they're probably close. They're going to figure it out as they go. And it becomes this very chaotic journey, this very improved idea of we're just going to sail and see where it takes us and where it ends up taking us is, is into madness. Whereas the Revenant, from the moment Glass claws his way out of his grave, he knows exactly where he's going. He knows what he has to do to get there. He knows what he's going to do when he gets there. It becomes programmatic in the sense that Every step of the way is to some degree out of his control. He doesn't have the supplies he needs. He's in a frigid, lethal environment that's going to kill him. But he has a very directed plan of attack, and he has he knows what he has to do in a way uh, the people in Agira don't. I guess my complaint, though, and I, and I mean, I, it doesn't apply equally to every filmmaker. I do like many filmmakers who are very precise. You know, there's not a hair out of place. Etc. But but in these instances, when they're when they're both these filmmakers are sort of out in the wild, there's an intuitive quality to Agera that's not present in the in, in the Revenant. The Revenant still feels, I think you use the word programmatic. I mean, it still feels very planned. Sometimes in a very exciting way, uh, a very technically exciting way, but the redundancies start to accumulate uh, because it's not showing you something new. It's not film that is making any new discoveries, I guess, in the process of it being made. Um, it's leading you down a, a very single-minded path, uh, which, is a, which is a strength for a while and a weakness in the long run. Don't you think that has a little bit to do with Inaritu's ego? To me, it does. I think he never wants you to forget that you're watching his film. You know, I think Herzog is he's okay. Showy. He's very showy. He's, you always remember that he's there behind the camera telling everybody what to do. That's true of directors we liked, though, too, as well. I mean, I, I think, you know, there's, you know, you're not in a Scorsese movie without knowing you're watching a Scorsese movie. Yeah, or but Kubrick, Wes if you Anderson. Want to I guess about, the difference, right? no, no, of course, but Wes I guess Anderson. the difference is that I like those movies. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah that, that's what, that was one of the things I wanted to make. That, I just, I, but I thought it was just kind of like, if you're out there in the wild, Maybe maybe got to open up the lens a bit. I'm a little maybe a little put off by the, the direction of the conversation because because of that because like we're kind of reacting negatively to some of the themes or some of the tones that Inarito does, and I, I'm not sure the style really has anything to do with that. Why why wouldn't it have, why wouldn't the style? Have well, I, I think if we were a little it more enforces in, that. I think we were a little more in sync with what he was trying to say. We would be a little less um, you know uh, put off by the way he was saying it. Yeah, just but I think the, I think the the tone the style and the tone are really kind of go hand in glove for me in this movie just the level of intensity and and relentlessness you know the, the, those are those are present both in the way the film has been conceived cinematically and and I think in in what he's trying to achieve thematically Fair that's enough. my thought yeah I just I don't I don't see why that's a bad thing except as Key says that you're not down with what he's trying to right, say I, right I know I know but I, I'm try, I guess I'm trying to make a point that's specific to the setting in this instance but but maybe it's just a case of hey I don't like that guy and <laughs> what he does and I like other people who make films where you know like Wes Anderson or Stanley right. Kubrick or people where there's not a hair out of place but the, the critics of those filmmakers use words like airless mm-hmm. and uh, and it can feel that way if you're not into it yeah, I mean, I can certainly see. I was a little up and down on that the big opening battle sequence in The Revenant because you can see the choreography so clearly and that's that's a matter of taste. I mean, I tend to be very fond of the the use of long takes in cinema. 
especially when they're complicated enough that it's clear that like how much work went into them. But that it does take me out of the story. It takes me out of the story and into thinking about what was necessary to coordinate this shot. But that is not necessarily detriment for me. You know, I it takes it takes often a little pushing on a first viewing of a film for me to think about its technical merits alongside whatever's going on with the narrative, the acting, the music, the, the cinematography. There were so many elements to take in. I can sometimes like being taken out of that by something that's so showy and that's so obviously was, you know, there's there is no very I, I bet when they shot that, like however many times they shot that it had to go off the exact same way every time there was no improv, there was no, you know, go kill who you feel like killing. And obviously, it does give you a very different feel for Magira, But like that isn't a problem for me. I could see why it would be a problem for you being taken out of the narrative. Well, I, I think that I mean, there's such a range of opinion at this table for I mean, really all over the map. So you, the listener, should maybe check it out. Uh, the Revenant opens in limited release on Christmas Day and expands nationwide on January 8th. Agira the Wrath of God is currently streaming for free for members on Fandor, which is a terrific site for indie and foreign film connoisseurs. And it's also available on Blu-ray in an incredible Herzog box set from Shot Factory that we reviewed together at the Dissolve. I should add also it's on Shot Factory's streaming service, which is quite good as well. It's, it's streaming for free there. Uh, thanks, Keith. Um, we'll be right back with our recommendation segment, your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch up on other films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Rachel, want to kick us off? I just finally watched Tangerine. Um, It came out earlier this year, directed by Sean Baker. It was shot on an iPhone and uh, produced by the Duplass brothers, who I always enjoy. Uh, It was just so whacked out and hilarious and just a complete blow to the senses. Um, I felt like... I'd been hit by the most fun truck ever by the end of it. Um, it's It follows two uh, transgender prostitutes in L.A. and their various misadventures on Christmas Eve. Uh, and I would highly recommend it. It's streaming on Netflix. That film is so much fun. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like I, one of the things that cinema does that I love is let you in on lives that are completely unlike your own. Mm-hmm. And that film just feels so immersive. The The two stars were so heavily involved in scripting it and shaping it and bringing their own actual experiences of L.A. Right. and the transgender community into it. I really feel like we're going to look back on that film in like five years as cultural anthropology. Mm-hmm. Just here, it's one of those movies that's like, here's what it was to be here and one of these people at this time. Absolutely. And yeah. moving too and what's kind of one of the best last scenes in a, in a, in a year that's got some really great oh final gosh. scenes yeah. too. Yeah, I, I really love it. And I actually should add that his previous film, which I quite like called Starlet, I think is also streaming and it also concerns outsiders in the same way but it's shot, you know, not not with an iPhone <laughs> and very lush uh, color and um, it's his twist on a Harold and Maude type story. Really beautifully done and very much uh, thematically linked with uh, Tangerine. So I would check that out. Uh, Keith, what about you? What do you got? I'd like to recommend a book that I was just I was just on a panel about last night called I Lost It at the Video Store and it's uh, by Tom Roston. It's a short book from the Critical Press, which has been doing a lot of good um, film books lately, some some written by friends and, and colleagues of ours, mm-hmm. uh, like the Pixar book that we talked about last week and Matthew Desson's uh, The Gag Man, which came out of an article for The Dissolve. Uh, this was basically, he just went and talked to a lot of filmmakers and people in the film industry about the video store era, which was you know roughly early 80s to 
uh, about you know you can put the end at when when Blockbuster went bankrupt was that 2010 or so when but the way that like when for a while that was sort of the the primary way people would experience movies at home and and he talks to some very quotable people from Allison Anders and and Quentin Tarantino and Kevin Smith about their experiences either clerking in video stores or how video stores uh, informed their their film education and it's in some ways a tribute to a recently gone but but nonetheless uh, gone era so I'd recommend it okay Tasha what about you I'm going to recommend a Hungarian film called Son of Saul, which came out in limited release on December 18th as presumably a counter-programming to Star Wars. I'm assuming that the idea is once you've seen Star Wars like 14 times in the theater and you need the the slick digital taste of it out of your mouth, <laughs> you go see this movie, which is I, I will cop to being a little tired of Holocaust narratives because I've seen so many of them and so many of them are delivered in the exact same somber, self-serious kind of way. Mm-hmm. This film is one of the more visceral, like gutting films in that area that I've seen. And it's because the director, Laszlo Nemes, whose name I'm probably mangling, does such interesting things with limiting the perspective to the first person point of view character of this film. It is, again, immersive and shot in these long, very, very choreographed takes. It's a a technically masterful film, but it's also just, it's so personal. It's so much about one individual person's experience in a, a chaotic environment. The main character, Saul, is a sonar commando in a concentration camp, meaning he's one of the trustees, basically, who is responsible for herding Jews into the gas chambers. And he has an experience that kind of brings him back to reality after drifting further and further away from it. Saying any more, I think, would spoil it. But it is one of the most intense and beautiful experiences I had this year, and I'm, I'm really excited to see it hit theaters. Yeah, it's remarkable. I think, it, I think. It, I mean, we'll get into it another time, but I think it seems to me like a rebuke to a lot of Holocaust narratives and also just a very audacious yet responsible way of dealing with unimaginable horror. I think, as you say, the limited perspective visually is just very precise and it feels like they're just making like he's making these aesthetic calculations second by second in that movie and it's so so precise and impressive for a first film for goodness Mm -hmm. sakes I'll, I'll throw that recommendation. Scott, what do you have for us? I wanted to recommend Experimenter by director Michael Amoreda. Uh, earlier this year on a show called Film Spotting, uh, Genevieve and I talked about the Stanford Prison Experiment, a dramatization of Philip Zimbardo's controversial study of power dynamics. And uh, now our Psych 101 syllabus is complete with Experimenter, which is about Stanley Milgram's equally controversial study of obedience to authority figures. Uh, I like both films quite a bit, but I think Experimenter is a deeper study of Milgram than the Stanford Prison Experiment was of Zimbardo. Uh, He's played here by Peter Sarsgaard as a man so haunted by the human potential for conformity uh, that he's willing to sacrifice ethics and his career to pursue his work. Almereda uh, also proves himself, I think, to be an absolute master <laughs> out, of, out of, of making a lot out of, of very little. Uh, he, he sticks with only a few locations, and he uses rear projection for a lot of the exterior period backdrops, which is, again, just a, such a simple solution, but a striking way of doing it. And uh, it's a very intense film that I think gets, um, you know, I mean, I think just, again, like the Stanford Prison Experiment, gets into really core questions of human behavior uh, in a very deep way, and uh, I, I would recommend it. It's going to be a, maybe a little hard to track down at this point. It, uh, it has already come and gone in New York and Chicago, but I think it will probably be one that will, will surface in uh, VOD and streaming uh, services uh, pretty soon. So look out for that, and thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. 
Well, that's it for this week's edition of The Next Picture Show. Before closing the book on this week's episode, let's reveal the movie pairing for our next episode, which premieres the first week of 2016. Tasha, what do we got on tap? Well, we're expanding our definition of new release a bit for our first episode of the new year. We're talking Star Wars past and present, and we want to make sure listeners have plenty of time to catch the new The Force Awakens before listening so we can have a long, spoiler-filled discussion about how J.J. Abrams' first entry in the Star Wars series looks compared to George Lucas's first entry, 1977 Star Wars, commonly subtitled A New Hope. The Force Awakens is already in theaters and probably will be for a long time to come. And if you don't own a copy of A New Hope already, there's still time to purchase it, as it isn't available for online in rental format. Yeah, I'm sure you have it. You've seen it. Why, why do we need to remind you to how to get Star Wars, you lazy bums? Uh, anyway, in the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Agira, the Wrath of God, The Revenant, and anything else film-related. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. In the meantime, uh, where can we find everyone these days? Rachel, where can we find you? I am editing on the weekends at Vanity Fair, during the week at Uprox, uh, Vulture, Cosmopolitan, and a few other places. And I'm at Rachel underscore Handler on Twitter. Oh, my goodness. What about you, Keith? I'm uh, heading up the film and TV section for Uprox, and it's uprox.com. And you can find me on Twitter at kfips3000. Tasha, what about you? I am a film critic at The Verge, where I reviewed The Revenant and Son of Saul and many other films. And you can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. What about me? What about about you, Scott? (laughs) Sorry. What about you, Scott? (laughs) What about me? Oh, I'm (laughs) glad you asked. Uh, You can find me on Twitter at Scott underscore Tobias. You can also find me on the Film Spotting podcast, the annual Best of the Year show with Michael Phillips and and Adam and Josh. Uh, That that should be happening, uh, I guess, towards the end of uh, the year, as it would appropriately. And as far as uh, writing uh, goes, you can find me at NPR, Variety, New York Times, Washington Post, uh, Rolling Stone, GQ, and other places. Uh, You can stay updated on the next Picture Show via Twitter at at Next Picture Pod or by visiting nextpictureshow.net. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show on iTunes. And while you're there, think about rating and reviewing us. It helps. Thanks again to Genevieve Kosky for producing the show. Thank you, Genevieve. Uh, you can find her on Twitter at, at Genevieve Kosky. And thanks to Film Spotting for all their help, input, and support. Please tune in next time when the force will definitely be with us. It may also be with J.J. Abrams. <laughs> <laughs>